Hi, I'm Jennifer Zeman, your host of the Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. Today, I'm joined by food writer, podcast host, and best-selling cookbook author, Julia Tertian. Julia is the author of Now and Again, Feed the Resistance, and Small Victories. She also hosts the amazing podcast called Keep Calm and Cook On. She has a new cookbook out called Simply Julia, which features 110 easy recipes for healthy comfort food, along with some thought-provoking essays on her relationship with food and more. Hi, Julia. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So I know we don't really know each other, but I'm going to tell you how I came to ask you to, to be on my podcast and then we can go from there. I first learned about you from Gwyneth Paltrow's book, It's All Good. And in, I guess that was 2013. And I just I remember, so, yeah. I remember just being struck by your presence in the book. I'm a restaurant critic, food writer who's had a very strange relationship with food my entire life. So I remember seeing you as a food writer talking about kind of your relationship with food. And it mm-hmm. wasn't really, I feel like as food writers, we're all like, oh yeah, we know the butter and everything. And it, and the way we felt about the food as black and white mm-hmm. was a completely th- different thing that we didn't talk about. And when I saw you post on your Instagram recently about how your most recent cookbook Simply Julia had helped you heal your relationship with food. It felt like a really great time to reach Mm -hmm. out because I'd also seen your piece in Vogue. Mm -hmm. And I know that I've seen you at Southern Foodways. You know, I know that you have been talking about this in bursts, but it seems like right now there's such a conversation about our bodies. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, I was listening to your, your latest interview about intuitive eating and for me personally, the, the past year and no longer going to restaurants has kind of made me start re-examining my relationship with food and the role that food plays in all relationships, like not just with myself, but if it's like a toxic one or like, yeah, I mean, like with someone else or with yourself or people that don't like food, but are in the restaurant industry. I just feel like there's a lot of interesting stories. So I wanted to talk to you about yours. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what to say, but I, I appreciate the time, you know, and thoughtfulness you've given to my work over the years. And yeah, I do think my work has definitely evolved just as I have evolved in this personal relationship to food. I think that's come through in my writing about food, you know, for other people in my cookbooks or articles or whatever it is. So yeah, I'm really happy to talk to you about all this. I'm an open book about it all. And I think in general, it is really interesting to hear what you just shared about your personal story. Cause I think, I think having perhaps not 100% positive relationship with food is incredibly common for lots of people who work within the multiple industries that are under the umbrella that we call the food industry, whether it's, you know, restaurant critics or cookbook authors or chefs or caterers, we're all people who obsess over food and pay very close attention to it. And I think that tends to come from an obsessive relationship with food, which can be wonderful and fun and full of curiosity and can also be full of obsessiveness and, um, I don't know, toxicity and all that kind of stuff. So I'm just with you. And, um, I think there's a lot to talk about and I think we're not alone in any of this. I remember reading in one of your pieces that in your house growing up, food was both good and bad? I mean, honestly, I wish I could tell you when it first started because I don't remember. I remember my whole life 
loving to cook, being so drawn to food in this really positive way when it came to preparing it, having this deep curiosity about it. That's always been true. And at the same exact time, it's always been true for me that when it came to consuming that food, when it came to eating it, when it came to my body and the consumption of food related to the size and shape of my body, that was not something I felt positive about. And that for me is as early of a memory as my love of cooking. Um, And I feel like I've spent my whole life being extremely confused (laughs) about that kind of dual thing happening. And I've spent a lot of time trying to just promote this really happy thing about food. You know, I put out like these friendly cookbooks and stuff. And for a long time, I felt honestly kind of fraudulent about it because I was like, I am not as happy about eating all this. I am not happy with my body. And I had no awareness that that feeling of like, I don't know, unease, if that's a word or unhappiness or whatever. I had no idea that was diet culture. I just thought there was something wrong with me because I was told there was stuff wrong with me from doctors, from family members. You know, I think we live in a very anti-fat world. And, you know, something I've learned recently from Aubrey Gordon, who wrote the wonderful book, What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat, and who's one of the hosts of Maintenance Phase, which she mentioned, which is just the best podcast ever. I mean, it's so, so good. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's fat. It's I so love fascinating. out. I mean, it's, Weight Watchers, yeah. I, I went and I canceled oh, yeah. Weight Watcher subscription. Wow. Yeah. After wow. their episode, did, I was like, I was like, oh my God, why am I still yeah. paying? You know, how does that feel? Good because my it's really weird. I've been working with therapists for like five years just about my anxiety, mm-hmm. you know. And she wrote a book like Ending the Diet Mindset, and she's been this mm-hmm. resource that I haven't even been tapping. Mm-hmm. So, the past year, I've been really trying to break free of any type of restrictive, yeah, anything. You know, I yeah. was doing intermittent fasting, mm-hmm. you know, I did whole 30. And so, the past year has been really trying to dismantle that stuff, yeah. I hear you. Um, You know, it's really interesting just to kind of piggyback on what you just said. I don't even remember what I was just talking about. And it doesn't matter. I think we're on the space. Oh, yeah. They're just so amazing. Oh, what I was going to say, something I learned from Aubrey Gordon is like, she just wrote this piece the other day about um, why she doesn't use the word fat phobia. And I was like, what? What's wrong with fat phobia? And she explained very beautifully about we live in a culture that people aren't scared of fat people. It's not a phobia. People hate fat people. People hate fatness. And it's, I mean, it's bigotry. So I, I just appreciated that moment to be like, oh, wow. Okay. Anyway, what you but just also said. also veiled under the pretense of, I don't remember where I heard this. So please, I can't attribute it, but that we care about you. You know, yes. you're fat, oh. but we care about your health. But really, it's not about that. It's about judgment. Yeah. So much judgment, so much judgment. I'm I'm having trouble completing a sentence because there's just so much to say about all this. And it's such a, it's so layered. But in terms of what you just said about therapy and anxiety and having this sort of untapped resource in, in the person that you're working with, you know, I've been in and out of therapy for most of my adult life. I am a big advocate of therapy. It's, it's definitely been a big part of the support system in my life and my mental health. And I, for so long, worked with so many different therapists and I've tried all different kinds of therapy. And I've worked for so long trying to just really get a handle 
on my anxiety, get a handle on, you know, healing a lot of traumatic things, trauma I experienced, trauma I inflicted, really working through all of this stuff, which was important and was not time wasted whatsoever. But I felt for so long, if I take care of all that, my issues about my body and my body image will quiet. (laughs) If I deal with my anxiety, then that will go away. And I don't have to actually talk about it because it's so hard to talk about. And then over the past couple of years, and especially over the past year, I've started working with like a body justice therapist, someone who's trained in this. What is body justice? Like for I someone who doesn't know. Yeah. Like basically, are you allowed to curse on your podcast? Oh yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like a fuck diet culture. <laughs> like, okay. and a, like, let's see it with clear eyes and mm-hmm. let's not put the onus on any individual. Let's hold the systems that created all of this just accountable and just see them clearly and see the like racism that's at the at the root of fat phobia and anti-fatness let's look at you know just the gender disparity and all of this like I think it for me it's making these issues that have felt so incredibly personal my whole life realizing they're not personal at all like decentering myself from it but also holding myself accountable and also being much more compassionate for myself in all of this. So I don't know, actually, if that's how she would define it. I'd be really curious to ask her and I can follow up with you. But that's how I that's how I understand it. You also said in in, in a couple of different places that it's like a matrix. Yeah, which yeah. I loved because I'm a fan of the matrix. Well, yeah. yeah, this was my wife introduced me to this because now dealing head on with my like body image issues and all that kind of stuff dealing with my relationship to diet culture that has helped me alleviate my anxiety in a way nothing else has Hmm. um so that's been really powerful the matrix (laughs) this is something my wife grace instilled in me and something for which i'm very grateful and to back up for a minute you know you were kind to share like how long you've you know been familiar with my work or and you know seen some shifts i guess maybe more recently and for me that shift has everything to do with my wife and i think long story short grace married someone me (laughs) who hated her body And I think that was really tough to be around for both of us in different ways. And Grace helped me understand that not only had I grown up embedded in diet culture in a very similar household to what you shared, very much in a Snackwell's household. That's an episode of Maintenance Phase that like literally hit close to home. You know, I had gone on to continue to practice it and preach it. I was on and off Weight Watchers for like 15 years. I, you know, worked on a lot of recipes that promoted weight loss that equated it with good health. I wrote recipes for Weight Watchers magazine and like, you know, I, I was totally in it. And I basically thought for a long time, well, if I just lose X amount of weight, then everything will be fine. And I will be the confident person that you married, (laughs) Um, you know, all that kind of stuff. And Grace has been through her own journey with all of this and basically very generously and lovingly invited me to just do two things. One, just pause and like understand all of this and just take a second and get off my weight loss hamster wheel and just assess what was happening. And the other thing she did, which was so powerful and continues to be powerful is Grace has invited me to look at myself through her eyes and the kinds of things I have said to myself, both out loud and just silently in my head are things that would upset the person who loves me, you know, like, so that's been really powerful. And anyway, in all of this 
powerful shifting and feelings and stuff, Grace kept saying to me, Julia, diet culture is the matrix. It's just the matrix. And I was like, okay, I think I know what you mean, but I don't because I'm the last person in the world who ever saw the movie. (laughs) So finally we, you know, I don't know where it streamed or whatever, but we rented it or bought it. I don't know how anything works on television, but she sat me down and I watched the matrix. And now I'm like, oh, I get it. And it's, it's been just the most helpful framework to understand diet culture, at least for me, because I feel like I just thought this is what the world is. Like the world prioritizes thinness. Thinness is the thing everyone wants. Thinness is the most valuable thing. Like the less space you take up, the more worth you have. Like I thought all of these things were true. And then I took the red pill or the blue pill. I can never remember. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, now I'm just like, oh, okay. That's a reality, but it's not the only one. That's something a lot of people believe, but it's not the truth. But I mean, it is a lot of work that you have to do. I mean, like I like I said, like I've been watching you on this journey. It's not like this just happened last year. I mean, this mm-hmm. has been, you know, weight loss and talking about acceptance. Mm-hmm. You know, intuitive eating seems to be something that you're working on, which I am as well, which is mm-hmm. hard because, you know, can you really have it at the same time as weight loss and accepting? No, no, no. This is my body. I'm not mm-hmm. trying to like lower my set point, but. Something else you had said too, which I thought was really interesting that like doctors had been telling you mm-hmm. and, I, and I've always gotten the same thing. And, and that was where I think a lot of my messaging was coming from. So was your messaging also external? I mean, you had a lot of negative self-talk, but was that also something that you were struggling with? Yeah. doctors and, and, and other people's opinions. Yeah. I mean, I have basically for most of my life, but especially during my childhood was told by many doctors, you know, they use terms like overweight and obese and define my health by the BMI index, which is just a totally useless <laughs> barometer for your health and the history of the BMI. I mean, it has nothing to do with evaluating your health and it's incredibly racist and it's incredibly limited. It was designed for white European men. I mean, that doesn't include most of the general population and it's used as a way to evaluate large groups of people that it just doesn't apply to. And it's, it's just worthless and we've given it so much worth. And I, I am very, very, very lucky, very, very privileged in so many ways, including the fact that I live in a body that is incredibly healthy. My blood work is routinely, I I don't have much to worry about with my health, which is a huge privilege. I'm able-bodied. I, you know, I've got a lot going for me when it comes to my body. And I was told for most of my life that that was not recognized. And all I was told was like, well, you should just lose some weight and everything will be better. And I just put my head down and felt really shameful and just kept trying to lose weight. My body did not want to let go of. And when it did, when I forced it to through disordered eating, through obsessive exercise, you know, I became so obsessive. I, I have a hard time, honestly, not calculating Weight Watchers points all the time. Like that math, that calculator is like stuck in my head, my anxiety, my stress, which are so bad for you, right? (laughs) Like talk about like bad for your health, like my stress around food, was so elevated. I think that caused more damage to my health than anything. And I just yo-yoed, you know, up and down and wait for so long. And, you know, I think of the damage I've done to my metabolism and just try to have compassion for that. And just, there's not really much I can do about it now. So that's sort of like my history around doctors and stuff, but also like being in a family 
that I don't place any blame on my family for this. This is what they knew, but none of us questioned it. <laughs> like, oh, the doctor tells you this, you do what the doctor says. There was no like, yes, but Julia's blood tests don't reveal anything troubling. So why are, why are we questioning her weight? She's able to like move comfortably. She plays on the soccer team, you know, until she quit because she was embarrassed about her body, you know, stuff like that. And this is all coming from someone who's, you know, white, who's got financial privilege to go see whatever doctor who I'm cisgendered. Like I've got a lot of things that make my experience in a doctor's office or just in the world, I think a lot easier than other people. So I can only begin to imagine what it's like if you're in a, in a body that's more oppressed than mine. I'm also not a very fat person and I've never been. Um, I've been according to different scales, like literally and figuratively, like maybe a bit larger than my peers <laughs> at times, but again, not living in the most oppressed body. And the more I reflect on that, the more honestly, just sad I feel about a lot of things and the more angry I feel and also the more compassionate I feel. So it's, it's a mixture of things. Yes. Pain is pain though. Yeah. You know? yeah, I mean, yeah. You're allowed, you're allowed to, to feel, but just, you know, connecting that to your new book, because mm -hmm. I mean, you said that the book simply Julia really helped you heal your relationship with food. What was it about writing this book? I love by the way, how it's broken up into so many lists. <laughs> um, it's very useful mm -hmm. as well. And really straightforward. I first came to know about your book through the healthiest share on that essay, because mm -hmm. there are essays in your book, which are just little delightful respites. I love them. But that one specifically where you said, you know, healthy does not equal skinny. And you were talking about Instagram and that fat does not equal bad or unlovable and that all our bodies are worthy, that you had been dealing with these black and white experiences within food, but somehow through this cookbook, you were able to to heal it. What was it about writing this cookbook? Yeah. You know, what's really just interesting to be totally transparent is... Mm -hmm. So Healthy-ish, which was part of Bon Appetit, they published this essay from the book and the essay in the book, the title I gave it was on the worthiness of our bodies. And as you know, but maybe not everyone listening knows when you write for other publications, you often don't get to choose titles. So this title that they gave it, like how I, how this, what was it? I can't even remember. It was a ending this, the diet mindset yeah, or, or like how like writing that. this cookbook helped me break free of diet culture. Yes, yes. That was the title they gave it. And I'm not, <laughs> I'm not mad at the title. The title's fine. You know, I have my opinions about titles for like, especially digital pieces, like in terms of like SEO, I don't even know what SEO stands for, but like, I get how that all works. The title is fine, but it's not the title I assigned to this piece of writing. The title right. I gave it was on the worthiness of our bodies. And I, I think this title actually makes it seem maybe that writing this cookbook is what helped me break free of diet culture. And I wrote this cookbook while working to break free of diet culture. And I don't know that I've broken free of it. <laughs> now. Like I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying my best. I'm not an expert on any of the things we're talking about. The only thing I'm an expert on is like my personal experience. And I'm just really grateful to feel very safe and supported to be very honest about those experiences. So I just want to clarify that because yeah, I don't know, that feels important. But in terms of, yeah, how did this cookbook help me in that? Maybe it's not like the one thing. Okay. Responsible. Oh, like, I mean, I've been watching, like I said, I've been reading your stuff. You've been on this journey for a minute yeah. and, 
And it, I don't think it's ever something that you finished, you know, like, no, totally. I'm no expert. You're no expert. We're just like two people honestly going yeah. through this and trying to figure totally. it out yeah. through what we do, which is food. Yeah. So please, I don't expect yeah. you to be an expert. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, this cookbook specifically, I think two things come to mind. One is I wrote a book that uses the word healthy in the subtitle, uses the word healthy to describe every recipe in the book. And this book does not promote or suggest weight loss ever. This is a healthy cookbook that has nothing to do with like restriction or deprivation. Like no ingredient is off limits in this book. No ingredient is put on any kind of hierarchy. Like there's no talk about good food or bad food. There's no discussion about clean food. That is not a term I understand. I mean, I believe that words matter. Yeah. So it's a healthy encourage a personal definition of the word. Yeah. which I love yeah. because it's going to be different for all of us. Exactly. You know? I mean, some yeah. people may think plantains are not good, but I mean, if plantains are part of your culinary origin story, then there's a place for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, yeah, I would say that this book is yeah a healthy cookbook that has nothing to do with weight loss. And it's a book that really, really just tries to look at what the word means. To me, it doesn't mean weight loss. I don't equate healthy with skinny so what does it mean if that's what it's meant to me for so long? And so I tried to define it in various ways throughout the book. And just as you said, I really encourage all of us to reflect on it and figure out what it means for us, because I don't think I don't think it means the same thing for all of us. And I think that's wonderful. I think it's wonderful that it means so many different things because we're all living like in different bodies. And I think if we stop trying to fight our bodies and therefore each other and just accept that it's going to be different for different people. And depending on so many variables and circumstances from where you live to what the climate is, where you live, like what ingredients are available, like what your support system looks like. I think mental health has a lot to do with just our general health and there's a million variables and a million combinations. So in terms of how the book working on the book helped me kind of get to, I don't know, the place I am right now where I'm sitting at home talking to you on Thursday morning about all of this, like really <laughs> comfortably and openly. And I would say, again, it comes back to my wife. So Grace, the timing of me working on this book coincided with Grace actually closing her business that she ran for 15 years. And she had some free time and some, you know, the sort of like slightly aimless free time that comes with like, switching chapters in your life. And she volunteered, I did not ask her, she volunteered to test every recipe in the book. And this is not something, this is not a part of my process I've ever had when it comes <laughs> to writing books. You know, Simply Julie is not my first book, but I, I definitely think it's different than other books I've worked on for a bunch of reasons. And one is that I think that these are the clearest instructions I've ever given in recipes. And I've always prided myself on like, writing very easy to follow recipes. But I think these are just like the simplest and yeah, like clearest instructions. And that's because Grace tested each one. And she would say to me, what do you mean by this? And I would have to explain it. <laughs> and that meant the instructions became very clear. The other thing that happened is because Grace has been just, in my opinion, a lot more evolved on things like diet culture for longer than I've been you know, she's the one who gave me the matrix framework when I would give her a recipe to test because I write all my recipes before testing them. Like I start them on the page. So I would print out the page, I'd give it to Grace and she would cook it. And I would kind of observe the process. And she would say, you know, 
this needs more fat. <laughs> like this isn't satisfying <laughs> enough. Like you need to add some cheese or something to this. Or when I would add something like butter or sugar to a recipe, she would say, you know, I noticed you only added this much, like how come? And maybe I thought that was enough. And maybe I was holding back on something because I was scared about things like calories and grams of various things. And not that she was telling me, she wasn't telling me to do or not do anything. She was just asking me really valuable questions and pressing the pause button over and over and help me get to a place where I just feel like every recipe in this book is delicious and really easy to make. And also like really fun. It's been, it's been really interesting because I've had a lot of opportunities to talk about this book, which is amazing. People like yourself reaching out, wanting to, you know, talk to me like that is, it's amazing to get to share something you've put a lot into. And the conversations I've been having have skewed incredibly serious, often <laughs> like emotional, and I think incredibly meaningful. And I am so happy to have put out a book that's led to so many conversations about diet culture and all this kind of stuff. And I also feel like it's just... I don't know, it makes me smile to also know that these conversations are coming from and in a book that also contains like incredibly fun <laughs> recipes, like the recipes are so fun. You're listening to The Food That Binds with Jennifer Zeman on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. I'm speaking with cookbook writer and podcast host, Julia Tertian. I used to go to Rascal House. And when I saw the <laughs> cabbage, I was like, what? Because when it closed, I was really, really bummed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the epitome of fun for me. Totally, yeah. totally. Getting to reflect on places like that. So for anyone who doesn't know, the Rascal House was like, I don't even know. How do you describe it? The, the most ultimate, fun So yeah. like South Florida Jewish diner, you know, with all the characters. Like the set of a movie completely totally. with the characters. Yes. Totally. And yes. so I got to reflect on places like that. I got to include recipes like, I don't know, there's like, there's a chapter of chicken recipes. And one of the recipes is... um like a jalapeno popper stuffed chicken. It's like, it's like a chicken breast recipe, like normally really boring, but this is like filled with like chilies and cheese and it's so good and it's so fun. And I feel like fun and joy and pleasure. Yeah, that's part of healthy to me. Like having fun when I'm cooking, when I'm eating, you know, that recipe starts with you take a mallet and you pound out the chicken. How fun is that? <laughs> like, I think that healthy is often seen as this very whitewash thing, as this very like clinical thing. Like you are to eat a bowl of, I don't know, brown rice and steamed vegetables and chicken, which I mean, I like all those things, I'm mean, whatever, but like that doesn't make me feel excited or that doesn't inspire a pleasurable relationship to cooking that or eating that. And again, I think stress is like the thing that is the worst thing for our health. <laughs> and, you know, I think pleasure and joy are kind of the antidote of stress. So I tried to incorporate a lot of that into the recipe. So it's nice to be able to just, yeah, bring that up in the same conversation. I mean, you look very happy in the book. And just the, the dishes, like you said, like, like, cooking for the people around you should like alleviate the stress rather than pile it on. And, and they all feel really approachable too. like, there's nothing like I'm looking at and it's like a four day process where it seems overwhelming. So yeah. I mean, even for people who aren't cooks, it's very approachable, which I always found about your recipes and all of your other books anyway, mm. um, which I'm actually mentioning all your books. In the <laughs> 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 I'm sorry, I'm like all over the place. I'm a no, little that's fine. Too. But um, 
but but just you know you said on your instagram that there was something about you making yourself this vulnerable that just opened up all of these conversations Mm -hmm. what, what do you why do you think that you got the response you did today like is there something happening today in diet culture versus you know 2013 14 You know, someone asked me a similar question recently, and my gut instinct is to be like, yes, there's a shift. I, you know, there's so many more books, there's so many more podcasts. But I also think people, so many people have been pushing against diet culture for so long. And to me, saying there's a shift automatically like centers myself in that response, because I'm like, well, I'm seeing a shift. And it's like, no, I'm just looking at something that's been around for a while. So I don't know. Maybe there's a shift. I think more people are paying attention to stuff like this. I think I can only speak for myself. I know one of the things that inspired me to really shift the gear I'm driving my car in or whatever metaphor works here is I was just so tired of feeling miserable about my body. There was just a true fatigue about it. And I also was looking ahead in my life. I don't know if this is just getting a little older or what, but thinking like, I don't want to be in my 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and feel miserable about my body. Like I've spent long enough and I just, I don't want to do that anymore. And I think that maybe a lot of other people, I think as our culture, as our country, as our world reckons with things like white supremacy and with misogyny and racism and all these things, I think a lot of us are realizing we can not be a part of undoing things that have happened, but we can be a part of shifting how they happen going forward. And we can look back a little bit more honestly and take accountability where we need to. And for me, that comes up a lot with diet culture. Like I definitely am holding myself accountable, like privately and publicly as much as I can about things to do with diet culture. And I want to change how I go about things moving forward. And so I think when we sort of make the I don't know, the political personal and stuff. Like when we realize, like, we just don't want to feel this way anymore. We don't want to live in a world that, you know, prioritizes any person over another person, whether that's has to do with race or the size of our bodies or our abilities. I think there is like a collective, just like we're over it (laughs) happening. So I think that comes out in all different places. And I think one of those places is, yeah, just like how we define healthy, who gets to define it. I have a nine-year-old daughter Mm. who is, you know, watching me. So I think that for me has kind of made it center on my world. She is naturally slim and athletic. And one day the other day she's like, am I fat? And Mm. I was like, first of all, don't use that word in this house. You know, like we don't like call our bodies fat judgmentally, but also that she's starting to say, well, you're on a diet. You Mm. told me that you are not going to have cake because, you know, you didn't think it was healthy. Is cake not healthy? Mm-hmm. So I'm having to really watch how I speak. Yeah, it's it's strange, but I when I was younger, I don't feel like there was the rejection of diet culture. I feel like the rejection of diet culture is a very new thing because I've done everything. I've been on Fen Fen, you mm-hmm. know, like mm-hmm. I mean, like I told you, every single diet. And right now, I think I'm like you. I'm just sick of. I'm sick of waking up in the morning and being in, in, in this push and pull with my body on, you know, can I eat this today? Was I good? Do I deserve yeah. it? Yeah. I don't know. I feel like what you just said is really honest and I don't, we have dogs, we don't have children. So I, I can imagine, I children. I have a dog yeah. child too. <laughs> I, you know, I can imagine what that experience is. And I just, as someone who was raised by a mother who 
really, really was so embedded in diet culture. And she and I are having really amazing, honest conversations about this now that we never did when I was younger. But I just, I think it's just, I don't know, great. You're paying attention to this stuff. And I mean, I'm lucky she yeah. eats really, she's a big, you know, she'll eat whatever I make and she will eat kale with gusto, like in my minestrone <laughs> and my homemade bread and everything. She loves it. But um, just the fact that she's starting to pay attention to that kind yeah. of stuff is jarring yeah. at nine years old. Yeah. Um, she's here and she's hearing what you're saying. And I read some statistic recently that said, I don't know where this came from. So this might not be true, but um, on average for women, our confidence peaks at age nine. That's really weird. Yeah. It just, it's interesting to hear that your daughter's nine and she, like what she's saying and reflecting and like that it's coming into her awareness in that way. One thing I heard you say too, that's just been interesting for me. Like when you just said like fat is not a word we're using in our house, mm -hmm. like with judgment. Mm -hmm. One thing that's been really helpful for me over the last, like especially year or two has been really, yeah, taking the judgment out of the word fat, using it without any disclaimers and without any sort of emotion and just a word that describes the size of something <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I don't know, reading more about that from different writers and stuff has been really valuable for me. And because I was raised thinking that fat equals bad and fat equals unlovable and fat equals the last thing in the world you want. And it was such a negative word. And it was like the insult that was thrown around that felt the most painful. And I, I don't feel like I'm, I'm not like reclaiming the word or necessarily, I just feel like I'm trying to take the charge out of it and to understand what it is, which is just an adjective. <laughs> and yeah. there's nowhere anyone, you know, needs to be. I just wanted to share that because it's been helpful for me. I, I really appreciate your time. I really love this cookbook. Uh, it's, and, and I really am interested to hear what you have to say because it's been just following you and listening to your podcast has been very eye-opening for mm. me and my own journey. Well, first I just really appreciate what you just said. That means a lot. You know, I just appreciate what you said about what, you know, listening to the show and stuff has meant. And especially because the show, the podcast is just a complete labor of love on my part. And I do it all. Like I obviously like I'm interviewing people, but I edit it. I like, it's not something I do because anyone's like asking me to do it. So it's something I do just from a very, very personal place. And honestly, just the desire to connect with people and have conversations like the one you and I had today, because I think these are really valuable conversations. So appreciate you listening to it. And I guess if there's anything I would want to plug in addition to the book, it would yeah be the podcast. And I don't really have anything else coming up. That's kind of it. In May, every other week, I'm going to start doing some like online virtual like cooking classes because Didn't promoting you just do one on Instagram? Yeah. Yeah. I did one. Um I was like pushing it on Instagram and um I did one last weekend and I loved it and it was so fun. And so I definitely want to do more. And it's it's been really interesting. But I used to hate doing cooking demos or like cooking classes. Not because there's anything wrong with them. I just always felt so uncomfortable and so anxious. And I was like standing in some kitchen that was not mine people are sitting there in person, like staring at me while I cook something. And I was like, this just feels like very performative. And like, <laughs> I am so like, I was always so sweaty. and Like, this is just awkward. And some people are like, so good at that. And like, so entertaining. And that's just like, not me in that position, which is fine. Like, we don't all have to do everything. But for Simply Julia and doing all this promotion for the book virtually, I am like loving 
any opportunity I get to do a demo or like a cooking class because I'm I get to be in my kitchen. So I'm like in the place where I'm my most comfortable, but also everyone's in their kitchen. So especially if they're cooking, like I get to be just a much better and more helpful teacher because someone will be like, how do you chop garlic? And I can show you and I can like have you show me what you're doing and we can like talk about it. And it's like you're using the tools that you have and you're doing it in the place where you're going to keep doing whatever the thing is. So I've like come to love it. So, yeah, I'm going to start doing more. Well, that wraps up this episode of The Food That Binds. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Julia Tertian for taking the time to speak with me. Please check out her new best-selling cookbook, Simply Julia, and make sure you keep up with her projects, including her upcoming virtual cooking classes on juliatertian.com. If you want to keep up with me on social, you can find me as Jennifer Zeman or The Food That Binds. Next week, I'm joined by Candy Hong. Do you have a favorite person to follow on social media whose posts just hit you in all the right pleasure spots of your brain? That's Candy Hom, aka Soup Belly for me. But she's so much more than the gorgeous pictures of Cantonese cooking and her restaurant visits. Her passion for social justice and mutual aid is awe-inspiring. Again, we're back on Wednesday. Until then, I'm Jennifer Zeman, and you've been listening to The Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network.